APRA acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles and today we're talking about those very National Boards. APRA works with 15 boards across 16 health professions and the board's primary role is to protect the public. Board members wear lots of hats to fulfil this function and enact the requirements of the guiding legislation. Each board is comprised of practitioner members, people who practice their profession, and community members who represent the broader public and their own perspectives and backgrounds. Our two guests today will certainly be able to share more though, so let's meet them now. We have two national board members. Mark Masenko is the Chair and Practitioner Member of the Medical Radiation Practice Board of Australia, and Jem Morris is a Community Member of the Occupational Therapy Board of Australia. Hi both. Hi Tash. As you said, I'm Mark Marsenko. I'm the Chair of the Medical Radiation Practice Board. Uh, my day job is I'm the Chief Technologist at the Royal Hobart Hospital in the Nuclear Medicine Pet Department. Thanks, Tash. My name's Jen Morris. I'm a community member of the Occupational Therapy Board of Australia. I live in Melbourne and my day job is working as a healthcare safety professional for Safe Care Victoria. And uh, I've been involved with ARPA and the National Scheme since 2012. I started off as a community reference group member and, and are now a member of the Occupational Therapy Board. Fantastic. So, Mark, could you start by telling us what health practitioner boards actually do? Uh, We work in partnership with APRA, and I represent the public as someone who has profession-specific knowledge, so being a nuclear medicine technologist. We develop policies and standards for registration practitioners. We make decisions on complex registration and notification matters. And I think it's really important to point out here that as a practitioner member on the board, I don't actually represent the profession. I'm just someone with experience in nuclear medicine, use that experience uh, to make knowledgeable decisions and put in place safeguards for the public. What kind of decisions do you make as a board? We make different types of decisions depending on the uh, the part of our role that we are enacting at the time. So we do have subcommittees on my board and on other boards that, for example, will make decisions about notifications that come into the board. So a notification is where somebody, whether they're a member of the public or another health practitioner or anyone for that matter, have expressed um, concerns about the way that a person is practicing the profession or whether they have a health impairment that might be um, preventing them from practicing the profession safely. And if those come into the board, uh, our subcommittee over at the OT Board of Australia will make decisions about whether or not that person um, needs to have certain, for example, conditions put on the way that they practice to make sure that they can practice safely um, or if there isn't any need for that. So that's one type of decision we make. We also make decisions uh, in response to what Mark said earlier about things like Um, whether or not certain types of courses should be considered sufficient for people to train in a profession. We call that accreditation. And we also make uh, choices and decisions about things like our code of conduct and our code of ethics and the standards that we hold practitioners to to ensure that they're safe to practice the profession. Great. So it's really like the whole life cycle of a health practitioner from when they study to how they practice. And then if a complaint is made about them, you're making decisions that relate to them and all aspects of that. 
Mark, how do you think that you as a board member and you as a board affect the care that people might like to receive when they go and visit a health practitioner? Well, primarily we set the standards of practice for registration practitioners. And our expectation is that registration practitioners provide good, safe and professional health service. And for instance, if you went to have an x-ray, you can be confident that the practitioner looking after you has had the appropriate skills, training and attributes to perform that x-ray safely. And Jen, would you like to talk about your impact as a board on the care that the public receives? Yeah, absolutely. I think particularly um, of interest for the OT board, for example, is that occupational therapy is a, is a wonderfully diverse and, and, and broad uh, profession in the services that, that it offers. So one of the things that we are you know, constantly discussing, I guess, is the, the scope of practice for our profession and all the different types of things um, that occupational therapists do. And it's certainly within the role of the board to um, to provide guidelines and standards around how different types of care are provided so that if a person is engaging the services of an occupational therapist, they, they, they can be confident that that person has um, done a certain level of training that the board considers appropriate uh, and that that person, for example, has an appropriate level of English language capacity, that that person is following a certain set of guidelines around conduct and ethics and that if they don't, you know, that there are processes that can be taken to address those issues. And I think also, you know, for, for members of the public, it's about knowing that there are people who are both within the profession and I guess bring that outside of the profession perspective who are really talking all the time about what do members of the public expect when they're being treated by practitioners, when they're in contact with practitioners and, and making sure that whether it's in a consultation, whether it's in the media, whether it's in any other context, that they can be confident the practitioners are behaving in a way that's generally considered appropriate and befitting of the position they hold in society. And that's a good segue into the fact that boards have both community members and practitioner members. That's required by the legislation. I'm wondering, Mark, whether you could talk to us about why that's important? Yes, uh, it is important to have both represented community members and practitioner members. Uh, the practitioners bring a wealth of clinical knowledge and understanding of how practice occurs. And community members bring an incredible wealth of other experience. Uh, but they also provide the community view and what is expected in health practitioners. And we've been extremely lucky on our board, and I'm sure it's all the boards, we've had such a wealth of knowledge come to us from our community members. We've had lawyers, we've had people in marketing, we've had people that work in government. So we've been really fortunate, and especially when we're writing our policy and stuff, we have a lot of community members actually writing our policy. And actually in our board, it's quite unique, and in a sense we have different professions that use radiation. We've got uh, x-ray or radi radiographers who actually take x-rays and do CTs. We've got radiation therapists who treat with uh, radiation therapy, and we have nuclear medicine where we inject radioactive material in people and then we scan them. So when we're actually talking about a high-end radiation therapy matter, that's not my area of expertise, and in a sense, I'm a bit of a community member there too. And so I'm relying on the radiation therapists that we have on our board to guide us in our decisions. Uh, and actually, we don't differentiate on our board either. You're all board members. I would never introduce anybody as a practitioner member or somebody. So I just introduce everybody as a board member. That's so nice to hear that everyone's just people like all of us. Jen, would you like to talk about that kind of melting pot of opinions and perspectives that you have sitting around the board or on in the virtual board these days? Yeah, in the virtual board, certainly uh, these days for the foreseeable future, like most people, we're calling in from our homes uh, at the moment to do our work. But yeah, I think what 
you know, what is so fantastic about this system that we have in Australia and, and it is enshrined in law is, is the requirement to, I guess, have that diversity of views. And of course, community member versus practitioner member is only one way that you can cut the diversity of thinking on a board. As Mark's referred to, there are, you know, subsets of professions, there's genders and ages and all kinds of other things. But I do feel like it's a very particularly important way of ensuring diversity on the board because as human beings, um, we always are members of, of subcultures in our life. You know, my family has a, a subculture, a, uh, an ethnic group might have a subculture and institutions and professions have subcultures as well. And so, you know, I work for an organisation that has a culture, Mark works for an organisation that has a culture and, and professions are, are the same. And so it's very important to make sure that we balance having on the board people who understand the culture and practices and norms within the professions, absolutely, that's, that's fundamental. But it's also important to make sure we have people that, for whatever reason, as community members, are just a little way outside of, of, that, of that particular culture or that particular subgroup, just so they can ask pertinent questions, you know, and, and challenge assumptions and, and challenge status quo's and, and I guess reflect changes in community views as they go along because sometimes those take a little while to find their way into profession and, and institutional cultures. So I find it really um, great and really exciting when I'm sitting around, you know, the board table or the Zoom table these days with, with my members of my board when they'll talk about something and sort of say, oh, yeah, well, that's normal. And, and often it's my job to say, okay, is it? And, uh, and if it is, should it, should it be? And, and many times the answer is yes, but I think that that question, you know, needs to be asked. And, and it's one of the great things that not only myself, but other community members on my board and other boards really um, take very seriously as, as part of our job. To keep talking kind of down that vein and also previously you were talking about um, making decisions about what's appropriate education, what's appropriate care, what are appropriate standards. Can you talk to us about how you come to those decisions? How do you reach this consensus about what standards the boards should be set? What are those conversations like? Yeah, so I think there's lots of different factors we we take into account and, and fundamentally we do obviously look at whatever standards are in place at the time if they do exist and build on that history and it doesn't mean that we wouldn't change them but they're a starting point for us. Um, so we'd look at our own existing standards if they do exist for whatever we're discussing. We would also look at standards in other jurisdictions, whether that's um, other you know, other countries or even other professions that might have similar challenges that they might be facing that might not be health professions or they might be health professions. So we would look at those, uh, any research that's available, whether that's research that's done with ARPA's own data, because there is a wealth of that now, or whether it's research in a more academic general sense. We would look at those things. Um, certainly, I always encourage the board and, and our board is, I think, very good at this to look at patterns of notifications or complaints or concerns that people have put forward to us and to other entities to see if there are things that are recurringly problematic in the profession that we might then need to uh, add or change to the standards that we're putting forward. And we also have to respond to changes in social environment, economic environment, political environment. So, for example, in, in my board, um, a very obvious example would be the introduction of the NDIS and the implications of, of that. So, we don't make determinations about NDIS activities, so to speak, but I guess the NDIS just changed the practice context for a lot of our practitioners in occupational therapy. So, we needed to be responsive to that. So, changes like that are also uh, very important. As at the moment, for example, um, COVID-related issues, you know, have changed the practice environment for many practitioners and many working online, et cetera, and we have to be responsive to that as well. 
And and Mark, I'm sure that there are some contentious issues around things like ethics or maybe consent. Do you have any examples of when it's difficult to reach that consensus? Again, the vast majority of health practitioners are, you know, they're good, safe, ethical practitioners. So we're quite fortunate in that. Uh, but there are occasions where this pra- there are some practitioners that struggle to apply ethical concepts. And consent, as you're saying, it's a really interesting one. And, you know, every scan that I do personally, I have to explain what's going to happen after, and after the explanation. I actually need to ask permission from the patient and client to go ahead. There's no more implied uh, consent anymore. So we've had considerable notifications where poor communication has caused the problem. And I'd like to put it out one more time because we've done it in about 100 newsletters, but people making jokes at the wrong time causes a lot of problems. You know, there's people there, they're sick, they go to get, a, they go to get treatment or they go to get uh, diagnostic studies done and somebody says a joke at the wrong problem. So, you know, as Jen was talking about earlier, the code of conduct, it's, you know, explicitly explained in there. So that's probably one of the big issues is people making jokes at the inappropriate time. Jed? Yeah, just I thought it might be um, worth picking up on the consent question, Tash, because certainly as a community member on 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 one of these boards, and I think other community members have had similar experiences, one of the um, issues of contention, I would say, uh, would be around, I guess, what the standard for informed consent with respect to healthcare-related treatment uh, is meant to be. So, you know, my perspective very much is that um, if anyone wants to look it up, there's a very famous legal case from 1992 uh, called Rogers v Whitaker, um, in which the High Court in Australia essentially decided, I am simplifying, but essentially decided that when a health practitioner is getting consent from a patient or a client, that the standard they have to apply in deciding whether or not to disclose certain risks of the treatment that's being proposed, they have to apply a standard of what would a patient in this person's position want to know? What would they consider to be a material risk to them? And that's different for different types of people. So if you're a surgeon, for example, you know, a risk that might affect the dexterity of your hands is really significant to you. Um, And so that's the standard that's supposed to be applied according to the court. However, I do find um, in healthcare in general in Australia, often an older standard is still applied, which is this sort of notion of what would a reasonable practitioner have thought was worth saying? So that's a very practitioner-centric idea of what consent is about, whereas the standard is meant to be a more patient-centered idea of what would the patient want to know instead of what would a practitioner say. So we do conversations about that um, and and the standard should be and how we apply that. Mm. And I guess it's about a, a kind of double layer of empathy, right? As a as a health practitioner, you need to be empathetic to your patient. As a board member, you need to be empathetic to all of the people involved um, and who are affected by the practice of the profession that you regulate. Um, I'm wondering, Mark, if you could talk to us about how, as a board member, you keep in touch with these community views and mindsets Um trends that are happening um, in order, because obviously you're making decisions that can affect the practice, how you stay in touch and kind of reinvigorate that empathy for all people who are touched by the Medical Radiation Practice Board and its decisions. Many board members are practitioners as well, and they work in the different hospitals. And I always like hearing what's happening at different hospitals because you can kind of get focused. You think, well, what's happening at the Royal Hobart Hospital? That's the standard and that's the norm. So it's really good to hear what other people are doing. Uh, community, community members also provide connection to the community with health consumer views. Uh, when we develop policies or standards, we engage with the community and the health consumer groups. We engage with governments, universities, health practitioners, and we seek their views on what's the 
best way to, uh, to regulate. And so whenever we have any policy, uh, we go out to public consultation and we take everything that we get back under consideration and basically have a look and uh, that's how we make our decisions. And I think, you know, we're, we did our capability document this year and it's really interesting because we put capabilities in there this year. The last time we did it was three years ago. And there's certain scans and certain isotopes that weren't even invented back then. Or like they weren't even being used. So it's just such a fast-changing, medical imaging such a fast-changing world that we have to keep on top of everything. Jen, could you talk about how you stay in touch across the changing landscape? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for me... Um, it's actually my primary job, you know, I mean, you might say my primary job is to turn up to board meetings and do the actual board work, but I do make a really significant effort because I have a consumer representative role in my life as well to really connect with um, the entities that work with consumer reps and consumer and community members um, in other contexts as well. So we have a national peak body, for example, the Consumers Health Forum, and then we have state and territory entities that do similar work all around Australia. So I make sure to connect with the events and the networks that those organisations have put together and very active in, in those groups. And I also just try to make sure that it's no secret to anyone in my life that I have this role and that people feel um, able to, you know, speak to me about it and tell me about their experiences. And I think the other thing that I feel really privileged by I work professionally in a role where I work alongside uh, health practitioners as well on a very equal basis, you know, in the office that I, I like to really, I guess, listen to them about what it's like to be a health practitioner, whether they're an OT, whether they're a nurse, and try and get to understand their life. And in my role, I also do work in investigations when we look into situations where patients might have experienced preventable harm in a health service. And in that role, I do speak to a lot of patients who've had, you know, what we would consider some of the worst of the worst experiences that can unfortunately happen to people in healthcare. And I develop a lot of empathy for what that is like for them and how those things happen. But we do also speak to the people who are involved in that, for whom those events are very traumatic too, because they didn't wish harm upon the person. Um, so I think that really helps me to develop both an intellectual understanding of how these things happen, but also an empathy about what that's like to live through for everybody. Kind of face the reality that sometimes things don't go right and um, that we need to deal with what, if, what we call notifications or complaints about health practitioners. Mark, I'm wondering whether you could talk about what happens when things go wrong in healthcare and when people raise a concern, what the board's role in that process will be. We have to... So the board hears complaints against practitioners and in some instances, as Jen was saying earlier, we'll caution the practitioner. In other instances, we can put conditions on the registration, things like practicing under supervision or a condition that they see their treating practitioner. And you know, some people have to grow breathalyzer at the beginning and at the end of each shift. Um, so we do get regular notifications. Uh, in very serious matters, the board uh, refers these on to a tribunal and where necessarily to the police, although usually it's the police are the ones that are informing us of the, some wrongdoings happened with the practitioner. Do you have an example that you could share with us about a complaint that's been raised? Well, I like to call this one the horse whisperer. Uh, we had someone apply for registration. They were coming from the Middle East and they worked for the last 10 years and they had a prestigious name of a hospital that they'd worked at. Uh, on further investigation, I went to check it out, though, that she forgot the word equine in front of the hospital. So this person had been x-raying horses for the last 10 years, and she wrote on her stat debt, you know, that she was basically, was her recency of practice was fine. The matter actually went to a tribunal, 
and uh, she was found guilty and she basically lied on her application. Well, it wasn't really lying, but the tribunal found by omitting the word equine, that in a sense was a lie. And so basically it goes to the fit and proper person. Uh, she still was registered, but she had to go under a period of supervised because she was now X-raying humans. So that's a good one. And I can talk about that because, like I said, it was posted because of the tribunal ruling. Things that you never thought you'd see or hear about, I'm sure. So we hear from practitioners that sometimes there can be a fear of the national boards and the, the power that they can yield, like, for example, by deregistering practitioners. Mark, do you have any, uh, could you dispel any myths or talk to us about what actually happens and how often people are deregistered? Yeah, look, I think it's really important. I actually like the word notification. So people actually notify the board that there's some potential professional, uh, unprofessional behavior happening. And I think it's really important. Jen touched on it earlier. We're not actually out there to punish people. So what we do is we get a notification. Let's say, for instance, uh, someone has concerns about someone's mental health. So, and they put a few examples up and there's a notification. Well, what then we do is we can actually ask for a, like a health assessment and then the board gets the health assessment back and then we try to put measures in place to mitigate any risk, you know, because part of the national law is access to healthcare. And if we just start pulling everybody out and deregistering everybody, all of a sudden you can have areas where there's no access to healthcare. So what we're trying to do is put measures in, in place that actually makes somebody once again a safe practitioner. So as I said, deregistering, that's the very last step. And it usually never gets to that step. Sometimes a complaint is raised and um, there isn't any action that comes out of it. Jen, what, what happens from there? Are there still opportunities for people to learn and reflect, even if there's no regu regulatory action taken? Absolutely. We really do encourage all of our practitioners uh, to consider a notification as an opportunity to reflect on their practice because it is the board's position and, and it's our remit in the, in the legislation that, you know, we are to take action um, around a practitioner when we think that they pose a certain level consistently of risk to the public. And so we might decide that that's not the case, but that doesn't mean that this one-off thing that has happened wasn't, you know, less than ideal. And so there may still be opportunities for that person to learn. So certainly with our board, um, when that happens, where we think it's appropriate, which is not always the case. We will um, give the practitioners some feedback on the fact that this might be a learning opportunity for them and what some of the areas of practice that they might want to look into are and how they could be supported to do that. So we had somebody recently, for example, who um, had raised a concern about the quality of a report that an occupational therapist had provided we didn't believe in, uh, with all the evidence we had, that that person necessarily was um, performing at a level that was significantly poor enough for us to act. But we did think that the report could have been improved. So we've been in communication with that practitioner via APRA staff to just say, look, you know, maybe there are some things you could, you could look into about how to improve your, improve your report writing and um, we gave some examples of our concerns about the quality of that report so we're really trying to turn it into a supportive reflection opportunity for those practitioners so that they don't have to find themselves you know um, in front of us again which I think is is really the outcome we want for everybody because in the end it's not about catching out practitioners it's actually just about ensuring people are safe so that's just as important um, as it is you know to ensure the safety of everybody. I mean 
that's your key role and it's about upholding the profession and healthcare in Australia so that everyone is safe. Where do you think regulation is going in the future? What, how are we going to continue to keep the public safe? Uh, it's interesting. I think the COVID thing, and as we were talking about earlier, how we're virtual health, virtual healthcare out there now, and you know things are changing. Uh, it's going to be more difficult in some ways because people are providing healthcare from other countries. And how do you regulate another country? You know, you go online and there's uh, you know there's psychologists or you don't know where they're at, and you know they're going to give bad bad advice. So I think it's something that we're going to have to really take a hard look at. And it's something we're starting to look at now. Technology has just expanded so much. I've been on the board since 2011 is when I started and it's changed so much since then. Thank you to our guests, Mark and Jen, for your insights and stories. It's certainly interesting to look behind the curtain and see the people who make the important decisions for public safety through the effective regulation of health practitioners. Thanks very much, Tash. Thanks, Tash. Thanks, Jen. And thank you for listening to this episode. We encourage you to subscribe to Taking Care in your preferred podcast player. We also have episodes and transcripts available on our website, www.arpra.gov.au. And if you have any feedback, please contact us at communications at See you next time. <laughs>